I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And a good morning, everyone, to everyone out there. You can hear the rustling of pages. That means we are back live on I-94 here at Lumpen Radio. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Morning, Jamie. How are you guys doing today? Good. It's good to be in the studio. Yeah, Real good. Day. it's been a rare. It's been a rare time. It's been. Uh, I think this is one of the few live shows we've been able to do in, in a couple months. Two. Second one in Second. six months. Second yeah. one, yeah. And this is show number ninety nine. So our our big hundredth anniversary will be next week. Uh, are you going to give me a cake? I can make you cake. That'd be great. Please yeah. bring me a cake. I'd like a cake and some gluten free or no, 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 no. Yeah. Come on, vegan. No, 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 no I mean no, no, today's no. show. You'll today's show. I know today's show. Well, we've got a special guest actually back in the studio. This is your second time on I ninety four. Something we don't, actually don't do very often. I think we've only do it, done it a handful of times. Yeah. Uh, but your Chicago, mom and that's it. Right? And Elizabeth Moore. And Elizabeth oh, Moore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you become the third. It's Maurice Meyer, a Chicago author. She's got a new book out. Her first novel too, I believe, The Seventh Mansion. But you've had so many more books before this. It seems weird to be saying this is your debut novel, right? I know. It says it on the book, but I don't even know what the difference technically between a novella and a novel is. Yeah. There isn't. Okay. Really, that there you much go. of a difference? Yeah. There's a marketing difference. Thank you. From well, school, it was a length, right? Wasn't it? Like, if it's, it's under the length, but they also just want to be able to say it's the first one. Uh, I don't know why that's important. Yeah, I don't know. And it's, it's actually, I mean, the novel's not super long either. It's 170 pages, maybe? Yeah. So, it's yeah. basically a novella. Yeah. But it's good. Thanks, Maurice, for coming down. Thank you really, for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Um, Seventh Mansion came out. It's been very well reviewed. So congratulations yes, on yes. that. Uh, you know, I, I believe the New York Times just picked it up too. I think it's in. The Did next, they really? No, I think they it's in, didn't. I think it's next week. Yeah. <laughs> oh lord. I think it's next week. Yeah. So well, I. Congratulations. I, That's congratulations. Awesome. Yeah, I think I saw it this morning when I was just trying to find a picture to put on social media. You know what? I, it deserves it. I. I I didn't get a chance to see if it was reviewed or not, but I was think I was hoping that it, it did get picked up because there's so much that's published, a lot slips under the radar. Yeah, and uh, this this is a pretty special book, I think. Yeah. So, Maurice, first of all, again, welcome back. Thanks so much for being on the show. The kind of boilerplate uh, crap that I usually say is, uh, you know, this is a new novel is about a young uh, man uh, who gets involved with. Um, I would say animal rights and environmental causes. He's not much of a, a guy who fits in anywhere, uh, and bad things are going to happen to him. And along the way, uh, he's going to become involved, and I mean that in every sense of the word, with uh, the skeleton of a dead saint. Um, so I kind of wanted to start off because, you know, you, you've written books that are all over the place, horror, you know what I mean, uh, literary fiction. This book uh, when I first picked it up, I thought, you know, this is Maurice trying to write young adult fiction, which was weird to me because I don't normally think that about you. And I wondered if we could start there because, um, and I mean that, by the way, as a, you know, as a compliment, Jeremy, of course, you know, does young adult fiction at the, at the library here in Chicago. Um, I think when we talk about books for, for kids, sometimes we forget that the best book for kids are ones that don't talk down to them and yes. ones that entertain them in a way that I think we as adults kind of take for granted. So I, I kind of wanted to start there because I did feel that this was, you were trying to reach a younger audience, but at the same time you were doing that and, and not in a way that sacrifices anything that you've done before or your, your own very unique voice. I did want to add before we, I would say this is, from a librarian standpoint, it's a crossover. It's an adult novel that teens will like. I, um, mm -hmm. It's a little 
Some yeah. the, you're some, saying that you, the necrophilia doesn't go with young adult literature. <laughs> well, is that what you're saying? I wouldn't say that necessarily, but I could. Kids are growing up. I could see days. like a, a parent coming in and be like, "Jeremy, you recommended this book to my 15 year old, and this guy's licking a skeleton. So can you please explain why?" <laughs> and and I, and I'm it's I'm joking about it, but the book is very serious and. Uh, Z, the protagonist, yeah, yeah, is very connected with the earth in a way that's, Jamie said, like an activist, but it's more in like a spiritual way from the mm-hmm. way I read it. And so I wanted to let you talk about it, of course. So let's hear what you have to say, Marie. Yeah, well, I did have this idea several years ago to write a young adult novel about a young person who is a necrophile. <laughs> um, and I don't know what why I had this idea. But I think it was partly because I also fell into the trap of thinking if you write about young people, then it's a book for young people specifically, that it's that it needs to be marketed in a way, in a young adult way. But I think also I was thinking it would be interesting to challenge the category itself by taking subject matter that other people would think was taboo or inappropriate and putting it into this category that you know, need, that people think needs to be safe or it needs to be um, separated at all for whatever reason from adult fiction. And then as I was writing this book, which is not, you know, I don't use the word necrophilia or necrophile in it because it doesn't, you know, it's a sensational word and I like saying it, but it doesn't quite sum up what the nature of the relationship right. is yeah. um, between Z and, the, and the, the saints and his fascination for bones. But I am really disturbed by this idea that any book that has a protagonist who's under the age of 18 is automatically a coming-of-age story, and that was language that I did not want marketing to use for this book, which they did anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I think, you know, they just can't help it, or, or, you know, all of the stuff that it's about Z becoming something, becoming adult, becoming wiser, becoming, uh, you know, more aware of what the real world is I guess Um, and as a youth liberationist like I I don't believe in these categories of child and adult I think children are the most oppressed minority in the world Um, they're the only category of people that have pretty much no rights under the law Um, they're the property of of adults of their parents Um, and I think that's really weird and the excuses we use to perpetuate that oppression are all the same excuses we've used to oppress women and minorities for centuries Um, and the fact that we don't question the use of those ideas against young people when when we've come to accept that we can question them for all these other categories to me is is really interesting so the the idea to write about a young person was definitely purposeful it's been in my mind for a long time Um, but then I I think I thought if I had tried to present the book to a publisher as a young adult novel, it it would have backfired, and then you know there would have been more limitations on how I could have written the book, and it didn't make sense because the whole point was to like explode the category anyway. But I'm glad that people asked the question because people have been talking about the fact that it is about a young person, and it gives me an excuse to um, push back against yeah. These and it's not a, it, there's no exploitation in it to me. I mean. Uh, you know, we were laughing about the skeleton and and, yeah. and Z, but it's also a highly, I mean, it's one of the most spiritual novels I've read in a long time. Oh, thank you. Appreciate and, that. And um, his relationship with the earth is different than anything I've ever read before. I mean, it's, 
at first I was like, oh, he's obsessed. But then I was like, no, there's a connection there. This it's. I, I hate using the word magic because it makes me think of like David Copperfield or something. But like, there's like this magical connection between this kid and the earth. And I also want to say I reviewed young adult novels for ten years for Chicago Public Library, and this, although the protagonist is young, this is one. It's it's very original. Yeah, it's not formulaic. Yeah, Thank and you. that's I mean, Thank and, you. and I'm not saying this is a YA novel. I don't think it is. I think it's a novel about a young person that's very connected that we don't see in a lot of adults. I mean, there's a a, a strange like spiritual maturity. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Jim. Well, I was I was going to say just coming back to your point. I, I think it's really interesting. You talked about not thinking of this as a coming of age story. That never entered my mind. Mm-hmm. Me neither. You know, I, when I when I read the book, I. I looked at it, I think, more in the way of Jeremy. You know, it, it, it spoke to me more, um, you know, I related a little more to, and I called him she for some reason, not G. I'm terrible with name pronunciation. Z. Z. He so, says it in the book, yeah. Yeah, I'm terrible. And I'm so. sorry, Jamie, I asked Maurice the proper pronunciation. Okay, well, pronunciation. <laughs> I can't so, even pronounce pronounce. Yeah, but, so yeah. In, in my head, you know, that was that was how it was. So I, I should, you know, I should own up to that right now. Um, but, but. G's character struck me as somebody that I, you know, related to. Somebody see. kind of a fish. See, I'm not. not that, it's my character. I, I read the book too. Okay, he's, you know, he's a fish out of water. He's very uncomfortable in high school. He doesn't really fit in anywhere. Um, and many of the things that he's drawn to and attracted to, um, the people around him simply not only don't understand but cannot understand. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There, there's no way that they can. They, they think they understand. It because they have some similar interests. You know, some of the people that are involved in um, environmental causes and animal liberation causes and stuff like that, but they don't because his connection to these things, as I think Jeremy's pointed out, and I think you you were trying to get at, is at a far deeper and less conscious level. And I think one of the things that was really interesting is that you were kind of plumbing this sort of unconscious connection that he has to these things that have existed in our society for so long, this kind of uh, mysticism that we've put into rituals, this mysticism that we've put into uh, stories and, and the ways that we describe ourselves. And he really feels that at an innate central level, which no one else does. So as a result, you know, it's not a coming of age story. He, he's a complete outsider. And I don't actually think he's ever going to come inside right. yes you know what i mean there's there's no room for him to be inside because he's simply i, I looked at him in a weird way as kind of post-human and and mm. non-human mm-hmm. because he he really doesn't have that distance that we as the human animals have from all these other things yeah he doesn't want the distance i mean he feels a sort of institutional separation i guess he's aware of all the things that separate him from all other creatures and um I think the coming of age, I want to go back to like his his age and this idea that I love what you said that he's he's always going to be an outsider. So he'll never come of age in a certain right, sense. Yeah. And I think some people look at it and there's been some um criticism from readers who and, and fans of my other work who really dislike the book because they feel that Z is spoiled. <laughs> And um, really? you know he needs to grow up. Yeah, it's weird to have. That's how I felt about Joe. I I didn't like <laughs> Joe. <laughs> like, um, and I think there's this association between what we call idealism and youth. 
And I think that was why it was really hard for people to, to, to not frame this story in terms of a category about I thought that was a adult. beautiful part of the book. His father was so so loving I and, know, and it was, that's dad. what made it realistic it and, wasn't you, and you felt so bad for him like i was like oh this poor dude <laughs> <I know. laughs> oh the dead yeah man yeah. he just took it on the chin because he it, tried so hard he did try <laughs> yeah. to me it wasn't like z was never going to come of age or never going to grow up it, it's it was him being 15 16 was the perfect way to to really accentuate what it means to become yourself yeah. And the he, struggles to become he yourself. He is himself already, yeah. right? And it's, he, it's this pressure right. from the outside to say, you need to let go of these ideas and these feelings that aren't part of the real world. When he really is more aware of the real world than some of the people around him. He's not perfect. But he, he doesn't have the experience he that some of the older activists have. And to right. me, the book was about him having experiences that he was going to have a choice. He could either conform to, mm-hmm. to what his elders were doing, including his female friends, who I think are a little bit older than him, yeah. or he could choose to do what's right, often which seems really crazy. Yeah. Really, yeah. <laughs> right. And that's, that's, that seems so real mm-hmm. and it, to me. Can you tie that into, you were talking earlier about, I forgot exactly how you phrased it, the child, children, the oppression. Child liberation. Or child liberation. liberation. Yeah, can you tie that in? Uh, I, I've never heard that before. I think... I've read that in an interview with you in the past. We talked about it last time. Yeah, like when we did, did we do Rag last time or Heartbreak? It was Rag. Yeah. And um, can you, I I, I wasn't familiar with that. I'm sure a lot of our listeners probably aren't either. And I'd like to hear a little more about that. Maybe if you want to tie it in with Z. Oh, yeah. So youth liberation is just like all liberations. It's the idea that young people should have equal rights under the law. Now, I'm an anarchist as well, so the idea of rights and laws, whatever. <laughs> but um, it's just about breaking, examining the category in the effort to, to, to break it down. Okay. So I think that children of all age, any ages, should um, there shouldn't be limits on whether they can work, own property, choose where they live, choose where they go to school, not to go to school, all, you know, it's total liberation. The same for animals. Of course, they, they used, women, I mean, people. You know, kids used to work. I mean, and yeah, they used and, to work. And we, really I mean, hard. Really hard. I mean, <laughs> really and hard. there were reforms going back to, you know, to get them out of the sweatshops and stuff. You know, I do miss the tiny little hands on those oh. nice knit dresses. Um, I actually want to go back and say it was interesting. You brought up idealism and youth. And I think that's a really interesting point because a lot of people conflate idealism with somehow not being mature. With ignorance and, yes, a lack of maturity. Yeah. So yeah. that is a huge thing for me. And I think, you know, partly what um, this anti-youth sentiment that we have in our culture does is it, it tries to beat out of young people what makes it possible for humans to live, like, gently on the earth. So animism is a natural thing that most, you know, children think that things are alive, Right. We, we're all, I think almost all of us grew up thinking maybe our toys were alive, that we, we sense that plants and trees and... Wait, you're uh, saying they're not? I'm saying they are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying you were right. when. So with Z, this idea that like people look at him and they think his idealism is what's causing these problems, right? If he just lets go, if he just relaxes, then he'll just have an easier time of it, right? And that's... 
But by the time young people get to be 18, by the time they're able to participate in the system, um, they've been told that all the things, all their, their, their natural desire to to challenge oppression and to challenge these ideas that separate a, the adults they see behaving in horrible ways. Like well, to use their instincts, basically. To use yeah. their instincts, yeah. you know, which is to, to care about things. I don't think that, you know, young people are inherently selfish or all these things. Anyway, so Z and his, I, I wanted to write about somebody who was right in some ways about the things that he believes. He's wrong in other ways, right? He doesn't see the community around him. He's, he sort of rejects some forms of community that are being offered to him, and that's a mistake, I think. But, um, but he's right about the essential problems that, that face us. Do you, do you judge your characters? Do I've I heard, judge I've, I've heard authors like no. say that it's wrong to feel certain ways about your characters, but there were characters in this book that I really who didn't did, like. Who did you not like? Oh, Joe. Couldn't stand her. Couldn't stand Joe. Well, okay, but I some was people don't like her. Why? Poor Joe. Oh, because she's just so rude and entitled. <laughs> And like you know, she's a rich kid. There's there's a line in there that I highlighted actually, um, and I thought it was. Uh, I'll have to look for it again when we come back from well, the here, break. Why don't we do? Why don't we actually? We've been talking about uh, Maurice's book. We haven't actually listened to any of it yet. Why don't we mm. do that real quick? Let's play a quick segment from from Maurice's book. We are talking, of course, about the Seventh Mansion. It's out from FSG, and as always, we do want to thank uh, Shanna Van Volt, and I think Makai McRaven did the music this week. I'm going to find out. I did this last week, so I don't actually remember. But we're going to be right back here on I-94. After dinner, Xi cleans the attic. On his knees, polishing the floor, laying new sheets on the mattress, clearing out old boxes from the closet. Dishes of bones at the head of the bed, a branch on the pillow. The garden is ready. The attic is ready. When you hear Eric's truck disappear down the road, you drop silently down the stairs. Black mask, black pants, the hammer in your hand. At the threshold of the church, you pause. Face slick beneath the mask. Wait for the fear to kick in, but it doesn't come. No one can hear you, stop you. Robed in the fresh dust of the woods, lungs drunk on its air, pushing the door open, at last. You recognize the quality of the silence that always fills the church, not absence, but expectation, a bubble longing to burst. The cabinet freshly polished, as smooth as satin in the candlelight. The key gleams on its chain. The doors fall open and the body looks down at you, ravenous. Hand tight on the hammer, you tap the glass once, twice, then again, harder, full swing, and it falls like water, shattering over the stone. Splinters of glass cling to the black mask, and the fibers of which your blood remains from the last time. You can still taste it. Shaking free of the shards, hands trembling in the gloves, climbing into the case, dust and bone and silver, bracing your back against the wood, deep breath, leading to put your mouth against his teeth, Eyes shut tight as you let the kiss run through you, beloved. Hand against his cheek, his brittle face, what you have waited for. Then, get the body free, strips of old leather strapping the body to a post. The knife cuts through the skin with a snap. In an instant he falls into you, grown of metal and velvet and bone. The glass cracks beneath your shoes, the body sighs, the crown slips from the skull. You put it on your own head. The only way to get the body through the woods is to drag it, walking backwards, skull pressed face down into his chest, boots digging into the underbrush, burns shuddering in their wake, 
starlight striping the length of the cape, shadows gathered in its stiff folds, lone owl, rustle of fox. He has to go slow, step carefully, arms and legs burning. Weave through the birch, past the dead tree, the stream peeling back from the rock. Walk right into the water, splash and drag, pull him through the gate. The sunflowers nodding on their stalks, panting, stepping over the threshold and something like gold coming from the body all around. No time to marvel, still the ladder to go. We'll have to, undress him first. The wide skirt, the breastplate, each long boot, hinges at the back stiff with age. He takes it all off, exposing the armor's lining of thick red velvet, unfaded, wet from where the water came through the boots. A pile of silver and gold on the living room rug, but the treasure is here. Can you believe that it is yours? So I wanted to ask you, Maurice, about the structure of the sentences, the the syntax. It was um it wasn't crazy experimental. <laughs> I wouldn't call this an experimental novel, but in a in a way it is. And it it, it kind of gave me the feeling, um I remember reading like Naked Lunch, mm-hmm. just being like, What is this? <laughs> but also like getting feeling from it. And it, it's a much more toned down version of that. But Well you also said to me some of the passages reminded you of Cormac McCarthy, which I can't think of a higher honor for a sentence oh, than to be yes. compared to that. Yeah. <laughs> well yeah, just the macabre Yeah. And and clipped feeling of some of the sentences um, reminded me of McCarthy. But I, I think there was an example in that reading just now. There are periods where you wouldn't expect there to be periods in, yeah. and that form two or three sentences out of what would normally be one. Um, and it's effective. I was just wondering how you came upon that. Um, just when I was sitting down... Um, to, to start the story to write and that was kind of how the sentences were coming out even more extreme than it happened in the, the final version I smoothed it out a lot but originally it was just there were pe- periods everywhere and it was the sense of this voice that just was so tense and it just kept getting stuck like on its way out you know and then when when Z is with Pancratius, um, and you know the book gets romantic. Then the language does the opposite; it kind of loosens up, and it the the sentences run on, and all of this stuff. Um, but there's also no dialogue tags. There's no yeah. indents for the dialogue. Yeah. I don't use quotations in any of my work, but it's even more extreme. Same that with McCarthy, s- I think. Oh no, he does sometimes. Actually. Like you can't tell all the time who's speaking. You can't tell if someone's speaking out loud if they're thinking something. I mean, I think you can sort it out. It's well, you can hard. intuit it. It's not choppy. Yeah. Like if it was. If I had to work that hard, I wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> like it. You know what I'm saying? Like it came. It, it comes to it. The book has its own voice. You know, it's just one of those things. So, I actually want to talk to you, Maurice, a little bit about Catholic mysticism. Mm-hmm. Um, I just went down like on a the the Gale <laughs> Library database about, and um, we have this uh, interior castle by Saint Teresa. Is it Avila? Avila. Saint Teresa. Yeah. And uh, what I read, um, so the seventh mansion is where the Holy Trinity reveals, reveals itself to the soul. Is that correct? Is that where what you interpreted from the title? That was a something I just pulled out of a reference book. But Yeah, it's her book about prayer and the idea that there's this. Well, let's back up a second. So Z reads this book in the novel. It's right. called The Correct. Interior yeah, Castle. Yeah, I'm sorry. And yeah. the author of this book is St. Teresa de Avila. She was a Spanish nun. She lived in the 16th century. She, like, wrote this book, like, 
in her spare minutes mm-hmm. because yeah. they they had strict serious duties in in the nunnery. I guess. In the nunneries of the day, yeah. And it was her it was her superiors who actually for, ordered her to write this book. And the mansions are rooms uh, in. I'm making quotes so people can <laughs> see me. Are rooms in um, heaven? They're dwelling places in heaven, and I think the seventh mansion <clears throat> is where. God is supposed to do well the whole the Holy Trinity uh, the whole so, yes. so I mean and let's yeah. let's back up even further so for for people who are not practicing Catholic um, you know the Catholic Church really is the 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 business version of Judaism in a sense because you know I mean the, the Catholicism you know became kind of the formal church um, after you know after the uh, the, the birth and the death and the Jesus. crucifixion um, and Judaism, of course, is, is you know, the, the original base religion that Catholicism lays on. Catholicism laid on a lot of the rituals that had been in other religions and older religions, including, you know, things that came from, you know, Roman times, things that came from, you know, pre-European and, and, and uh, Mediterranean communities, and kind of put it into a, a, a church that also became a, a business, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's a really important thing because when you're talking about the people who are writing in the 1400s, 1600s, as you know, they had very serious duties. And the reason they had serious duties was because they were they were producing things. They were making mead. They were making wine. They were making beer if they were in Belgium. They were producing vellum. They were producing scripts. But they had a very important social presence as well. Uh, They were looked upon as privileged members of the community. And so when, for example, a a nun starts writing these mystical writings, that was considered something of a blessing. Mm -hmm. And so for, it would have been very prestigious for, you know, the abbess at that place or whatever the, the order was to have this person who was said to be receiving words from God, which I think ties in a little bit to how, um, G is receiving his messages from the earth and his connection to everything else. I don't want to say that that's what you were going for, but that was the connection I got in my head and why you were going along with that. I just wanted to add, too, I know nunnery from a non-slaughter song. It's called Burn the Nunneries. Yeah. <laughs> Probably don't, don't, don't advise that. Yeah, and I, I don't know a lot about Catholicism, so I'm going to just throw that in there. The Did you listen to that as a young adult? Uh, no, I listen to non-slaughter to this day. I actually saw him about a year ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, there's actually a really good scene in the book where Z confronts his own beliefs with another character in the book. He, he had read The Interior Castle and made notes all over the book and, and loved it. And something happens where he begins to question how strongly he felt about it. And it's basically, to really s- simplify it, I don't mean to be reductive, but just for the sake of simplification, it's about action versus prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's kind of turning back. He, he had felt something when he read Interior Castle, and now he thinks it's BS. Right. Because all she was doing was... You know, sitting in a room and thinking she wasn't acting, and and it's not really a tension that's resolved. I don't feel like I could give anything away. I'm gonna not get into details, but um, do you have personal feelings about that? That yeah. So I became obsessed with Catholicism in junior high and high school. I did not come from a religious household, but um, I feel like I was born with a, some kind of faith. I'm atheist now, but <laughs> Uh, I have a twin sister. She always kind of had this atheist mindset. And for some reason, when I was growing up, I was totally convinced that there was a God and Jesus was the coolest person ever. 
Um, and so I started going to church, and I think I chose Catholicism purely on aesthetics <laughs> because, you know, the rituals and the pageantry, like, it's so beautiful, so overwhelming to be in those spaces. Um, and Z is attracted to the mystics because of the physical description of the relationship with Christ. So in, in interior castles with many texts from that era, the description of the relationship with Christ is romantic. It's a, it's very sexual. And I mean, you read it and it's sort of overwhelmingly like, wow, it's kind of shocking in a way. But that was just the, the way that people spoke about like the, the passionate relationship with Christ through prayer and being, you know, penetrated by the fiery sword of, <laughs> you know, religion. And I think I just blushed. <laughs> <laughs> I think I we mean, all did. It, it gets intense. And so I think when Z's reading that, you know, and I also had this when I, when I would contemplate Christ, you know, in the church was that it was, it's like a romance. Yeah. So there's the, the romance of religion for some people um, that draws you to it's the idea that even if you don't have, you know, relationships in your real life that are fulfilling, you can always go to this other relationship with Christ. And that's, that's your home. That's, that's this very special private thing that nobody else can understand, right? It's between you and, and, and God and isn't that what people want? And so he, so Zee feels that about nature for sure. You know, nature is his church, and he feels that way about these bones. Um, and so when he's reading these texts, he's like, yeah, that's me. But then at the same time, he also is worried that his, his relationship and his desire for this romantic connection distracts him from doing things in the world. So that if you're attached to to love in some sense with another person, another being, that maybe it blinds you, right? Because you can just kind of like, I mean, Teresa, you know, had these headaches and she was often just kind of lying prostate in her room, lost in these, you know, being ravished by Christ while she was praying or whatever. Um, and Z's questioning towards the end, like, well, why didn't she do anything to change the world? Because in Christianity, the, the, this world doesn't matter. The world, it's all about the world to come. So you can use anything on earth. You can destroy the earth. It's going to be destroyed anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, and Z is an atheist, even though he, you know, has these kind of mystical things happen to him with the saint appearing to him. He doesn't believe in a world to come. This is the world. This is the only world that we have. And so he's, he's struggling with his desire for connection, his desire for romance, his overwhelming romantic feelings, and then, you know, do I put all my energy into fighting, you know, these various There's a great line in the book. A lot of this read like a long poem to me. There, are, there mm. aren't chapter breaks, at least sectioned off by number, but there's a line in there that says, you know, uh, how to protect the innocent things on earth or all the living things on earth, build a church, build a bomb. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that to me sums up like the, the dilemma for, for Z. I also pulled a quote from, from interior castle and, and, and one of Teresa's thing was a great desire to suffer. Yes. And, 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 yes. and all the saints, right. It's all about suffering and yeah, humiliating your body yeah. and all of this. But stuff. I thought, you know, there was a lot of suffering with Z. I mean, he was, Oh gosh. You know, I mean, he was yeah. being destroyed by his connection to the earth and, that was very powerful to me, and I, I, I know we have to go to a reading, but I also wanted to say um, the, the term coming of age should be banished because people just, <laughs> yes. whenever there's a teen in a book, they throw that on there, and they either compare it to Curious Incident in the Dog of the Nighttime <laughs> or The Catcher in the Rye. And What's it's the like, German right, right. word they call it? What's that? The German word? 
Buildings Buildings Ron. I don't know how to say it, but yeah. I don't know how to say it either. (laughs) But at any rate, I just wanted to slam that in there before the reading. Let's put a pin in there real quick. We're going to be back with uh, Maurice Meyer. You, of course, are listening to I-94 here on Lumpen Radio. This is 105.5 FM, WLPNLP Chicago, and we'll be right back. And now back to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Yuji, um, yeah, Elias nods, glad to know you, holding Xi's gaze for a moment, shoulder cocked beneath his open jacket, Peter passing beer to FKK, Lenny downing hers in three big gulps, moon-eyed while Joe fiddles with a stud on her bracelet. You get your license renewed? Elias asks, turning to Peter, who burps into his fist with a self-conscious smile. Yeah, finally. License for what? Joe asks. Hunting, Peter says. Xi's startled shoulders. What, Elias says, you've never heard of hunt disruption? No. You must not be from around here. Lenny says, he's from California. Then blushes. Ah, West Coast brother. We're out in Kelly. LA, Xi says. Elias stretching his legs towards the fire, nodding. Long sip of beer. Well, if you get a license, you can go out wherever the hunters are, fire into the ground or whatever, let all the critters know they gotta clear out. You have to be careful, though, sniffs. Guys find out you're messing up their shot, your ass is toast. Xi glancing at Peter. You have a gun? I have three, Peter says. Grew up shooting. Joe winces. Jesus, you ever kill anything? Peter looks into his beer. Sure, lots of things. Deer? Peter nods. Deer, rabbit, foxes, ducks. Ate it all, too. Lenny shivers. Peter squints at G. Any shooting near your place? No. You know who owns these woods? No. I've never seen anyone out there. Elias fishes a chunk of tempeh from his cup of chili. Choose. Enjoy that while it lasts. Catching G's eye. G looks away. What did it feel like? Lenny asks, quiet. Peter leans into the fire, elbows on his knees. What did what feel like? Killing something, she says. He scratches his beard, a brief look at the ground. Good, sometimes. A pause. Lenny tucks her hands into her coat sleeves. Joe kisses the side of her head. The fire snaps. Elias tilts the lip of his cup into Peter's. Hey, keep up the good work, brother. And you, Farmer, I have high hopes for you. And that was another reading from Maurice Meyer's new book, The Seventh Mansion. It's out on FSG. And, of course, you are listening to Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature Show. I'm Jamie Trucker. I'm with Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hello again. And, you know, before the break, we were talking with Maurice uh, about our new book. Uh, I do want to, once again, credit uh, Makai McRaven and the International uh, Anthem Recording Company for providing the music for our reader, Ms. Shanna Van Volt. Uh, and I also do want to point out that on this show, while we do not uh, believe in censorship, the FCC uh, has some words they don't allow us to say so sorry maurice we couldn't sorry. say some of the words in your book uh i apologize for that so we just kind of glossed over them um <clears throat> before the break that we were talking about uh catholic spirituality and how that kind of connected with your book and it was it, it's kind of interesting because i mean i don't know how many people know this you usually write your books for your twin sister to read 
Danielle. Yes. She, she's your primary reader and, and the basically the person you direct your writing at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was very interesting because you were talking, you know, before about how, you know, you were growing up, you were fascinated with Catholicism, how she was, you know, basically an atheist. And how did she receive this book when it came out? Um, when it came out or when I well, was when writing she was, it? Well, when you were writing it, yeah. Oh, yeah, she was totally into it. Yeah. She's a scientist, I, correct? I, yeah, she's a... Well, she's a philosopher. Okay. But she studied um, psychology in school and then <clears throat> now completely rejects it. But Okay. Yeah, she's a she's a social justice um, person, amazing, teaches in prisons and oh, teaches cool. at DePaul. And I think Mary told me, Mary from PCB told me that she was a scientist. Mary, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Does she have a favorite? Does Danielle have a favorite? Does she have a favorite book? book? of yours, yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Um, Tell Danielle, her to email Danielle, us. Danielle, what's your favorite book? Maybe this one. I, I don't know. Did, she I, liked it a lot. I wanted to ask, it's St. Pancratius? Pancratius. Pancratius. I, I is that so. pancreas? Is that where pancreas comes from? I don't think so. I don't think so, but I, I hope not. It, I, but I, I believe <laughs> that if I well, remember, it's the one right who way. holds everything. That's the definition. Yes, and isn't so that that's, beautiful? That's it what, is, yeah. That, but yeah. I still but, think. But his, pancreas. you, I think, <laughs> didn't didn't you you his relic is a, is a notoriously wild one though. Yes, and I saw it. In, yeah. Okay. In person. Yeah. Is it um, Switzerland, correct? Yes, it's yeah. in Switzerland. Yeah, it's in Switzerland. He is um, for people that don't know the the relic. He he was first of all he was decapitated, and his <laughs> skeleton is put together, and he's a giant kind of glistening Game of Thrones kind of armor. Yeah. Uh, he really does look like something out of um, Game of Thrones is you know actually the best. Sam Raimi yeah. movie. Yeah. And my, my sister sent me the picture of him. That's where I got the idea to write oh, about okay. him. She oh, sent me okay. a, a photo of Pancratius and I was like, I need to write about this body. You right. know, he looks amazing. So he, he is the saint that she uh, has a relationship with. She mm-hmm. Somehow finds his bones that are not in Switzerland. They're not, yes. I should point out. Literary they're, license. Yeah, they're not in Switzerland. <laughs> what, but what was it the attire and the fact that he's got a wild relic that that, that was what attracted you to use him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I saw... I, yeah, and there's this whole backstory about, you know, when I was talking with a group of young necrophiles on a now defunct um, psych website, and they're all, you know, non-practicing necrophiles, of course. And, and, and the way they described their desire was always in these really romantic terms. It wasn't about murder or, I mean, it was nothing gross. It yeah, was all it, about a, a spiritual connection to these bodies that I think they felt like were neglected. And I was trying to really understand what it would feel like to be attracted to a a body that's not living anymore. And I couldn't quite wrap my head around it until I went to Prague on my honeymoon. And we went to see the Bone Church outside of Prague. And then there's a a cathedral, I think it's St. Barbara's. And they have two two saints there. Um, And one of them, I'm forgetting his name, I'm sorry cutie um, but there's there's a saint he's laid out in this coffin and he has wax over his skull so he's more of like a human you know living face but his you can see all the bones and he has these jewels and all this velvet um like all of these relics from that era like totally bedazzled and i was standing next to the coffin and i was like i understand now like I'm already getting the sense that there's a, a, a spirit to this body or that has a personality. I'm projecting all of these things onto it, and I feel like I want to take care of it. You know, it wasn't a lustful feeling, but it was, it was maybe romantic a little bit. And I, and I sort of understood in that moment, like, how you could project an idea of being onto these bones. It's and convincing in the book to the point that it's pretty unnerving. 
I went. Good. I had a similar experience in the catacombs in Paris. I was there. You know, yeah. they're, they're not open all the time, and I just happened to be in there in the winter time. And at first, I thought I was going to be freaked out, and then I went down there, and it was very blissful. I don't yeah, know. It was, yeah. it was kind of peaceful. I, peaceful. Went, I went yeah. with my daughter, who's eight years old, and she and she was seven at the time. She loved it. She thought she was going to be scared, and she was like, she we actually touched some of the bones for your There's signs everywhere. Don't I do it. And then I touched. She just stuck her finger into one of the eye sockets and she was like who cares it's already it's dead you know and then i touched a skull and then a piece like fell off the nose and i was like oh it desecrated the dead um i did the to be or not to be the hamlet sorry this was a long time ago i wouldn't do that now yeah poor york um but the but the when i saw this picture of of p as i call him in the book I was just struck, like, the the outfit that these, and it was nuns who designed this right, yeah. um, suit of armor. I mean, it's clearly a little erotic, maybe. I mean, he's got these thigh-high silver boots, this skirt, um, you know, this cape that's made of silver. I mean, he just looks... Strictly functional. Yeah, strictly functional. <laughs> like, man, he's really decked out. Um, and he has such a presence. And when we went to go see him in Switzerland, he's much smaller, of course, than he seems and, like, really gentle. But there's, like, the dichotomy of the, the intensity of this outfit, but then the gentleness of the bones themselves and the fragility of the body and the sense that, like, if you, like, how Z feels about the skeleton itself is, like, you, to interact with it at all, you have to constantly be aware of the limits of what you can do with it, right? Because if you're in any way violent or you put too much pressure on it, like, you will destroy the body. So I, I, was, I was drawn to this idea of, like, this romantic sense, and even if it's, it's lustful or, or passionate, that you, you, you always have to take into consideration the physical being of the other, and you have to care for the other. And to me, that's, like, the highest way of thinking about, you know, another being is the sense that like the your your need your goal is to care for that being and to and to protect it and he was very gentle he's very gentle and he was very concerned yes. yeah he was very he concerned takes about great care of it and yeah in a way i i, I don't know if this is crazy but it, it, you know, it's a love story in a, mm-hmm. in a way you know and he's absolutely it's it, a romance yes it's definitely a romance and i think the way that you presented it was very unique for one thing and you weren't trying to like shock value no 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 it's not supposed to be shocking yeah, or and, gross or weird or anything like that and that brings me so i you know i always read interviews with our authors and someone was talking to you about horror and you were talking about like the horror of real life <laughs> as opposed to you know the demon under the bed or whatever and i i love horror but i also am well versed in real life horror unfortunately <laughs> and well we're living it right now yeah yeah i mean and you showed up with a red hat with white writing on it my friend yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a christmas ornament distribution <laughs> that i got at a thrift store so don't anybody get and it has the twins from the shining it does on have the twins as on the well shining. so, <laughs> so <laughs> I know. I, w- I wear this hat. Sometimes people are like double take. I, I have a thrasher hat that's red and white too, and it's like, has Trump ruined red hats? But at any rate, he's ruined. He's ruined Hawaiian shirts and red hats. Yeah, events. and it's two awful. things that I wear like all I the time. Constantly, <laughs> damn him. But um, okay. So I completely lost my train of thought. Yeah, I'm good at that. Horror. Oh yes, and to me, and the reason I'm bringing this up, this book is not horrific but i think what we do to the earth is horrific and what z was seeing was the real horror 
of the real world. And I agree with you 100% that that's, those things are much more scary than, you know, some dude chasing me down the street with a chainsaw. Yeah. And do you want to touch on that a little bit with the book? Yeah, I mean, I think if you see the earth, if you take a biocentric view of creation or whatever, which means that you don't think that humans are somehow at the top of a hierarchy of being, and there is really no no distinction between creatures or beings or even inanimate objects in terms of um, superiority or um, supremacism, you see all of these things as bodies in some way, bodies of nature and as others, right? The way that we mostly see other humans as others, as fully other. Um, and so for people to, to know that people are destroying the earth, you know, fracking, tearing down forests, destroying trees, um, poisoning water, all of this stuff, is like seeing other humans like slaughtered in a war, right? And that's... Absolutely. And it's horrific if you feel that, like, and you just, you know that we're destroying each other, we're destroying animals, we're destroying plants, we're destroying everything at such an intensely overwhelming rate, you know, and we're, we're ensuring our own destruction, but the, also the destruction of um, millions, millions, literally millions of species. How do you live with that knowledge? Like that there's so much death and there's so much like, you know, this sort of constant, um, you know, Holocaust really just... Mike, so, and I, Mike and I were talking about that yesterday. We were at the park with my dog, and I was like, because everything going on, I'm like, well, I was kind of frantic. We were in the, having this intense conversation. I'm like, well, what's happened to global warming? What's happened to all these other things? Oh, yeah, well, and and yeah talking nobody's about talking about it. But, this so, is the ultimate threat. I mean, we're so concerned about politics, but my God, there's going to be no world, human <laughs> habitable world for people to talk about politics. Well, and that's what these politicians do. They slide all this stuff under the exactly. radar while we're worried about COVID, and it I, I'm getting a little off track, but that's, I agree with you 100%. You know, I'd be interested to know why your sister uh, um, turned her back on psychology, because <laughs> that's one of the big things about this book. Um, it shows the complexity of, of human interaction in, in a, 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 a good storytelling, sim relatively simple way. And one of the themes is that violence is unavoidable. Yeah. And so by acknowledging the violence that's being done to these natural things that Z loves, he incites violence in other people towards him. Mm, and mm -hmm. yeah, maybe she's more into philosophy, though. I mean, this—I'd say this is more ph philosophical. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, either way, I think that was one—that was the tragedy of the book. That's what—that's what created tension for me and made it a lot of it really made me care a lot, and also made a lot of the book heartbreaking. Was that he really just wanted to? be peaceful and, and left alone. And he realizes that it's impossible. Can't do Even it. like, you know, Can't he's vegan, it. whatever, he tries to live the best way mm. that he can, but he still has to, you know, he has a garden and he's planting these plants and he's harvesting them and he's, he, you know, I mean, it's to the point where he picks the head of lettuce and he's like, <laughs> he doesn't want to eat it because yeah. to him, even that is is full of life, right? And he never he never eats. Like everyone's always telling him to eat, right? Doesn't yeah, he hates eating because yeah. <laughs> it's just like eating his death. <laughs> and so but he becomes a great cook. He does. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, you know, but it's ironic that he's with a Catholic uh, saint because yeah. the Catholics yeah. don't 
believe, as you, I think you pointed out earlier, you know, they don't believe animals have souls, and they don't no. believe that. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's terrible. <laughs> I, I believe that was one reason why my mom left the church early on, or a church was because my dogs have somebody, souls. Catholics, yeah. I'm telling you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my cats have souls too. But no, I mean, I think that's that's an irony in in the book is that you know he's drawn to this figure, um, who is in a lot of ways um, the exact opposite mm-hmm. of what he purports to be or wants to be. Yeah, and and. and he is a really ambivalent character because it's it's never quite clear what he why <laughs> why does he appear to Z when Z is not a believer and did um, you pick uh, did you know when you're writing the book that he was 14 Pancratius am I saying it right yeah Pancratius because he got decapitated yeah, at yeah I mean the the legend of Pancratius is that he was a boy you know growing up um, in Rome under the Diocletian's rule and he refused to denounce Christianity by slaughtering a lamb or there's many different versions of the story but he wouldn't make an animal sacrifice to the Roman gods and so he was beheaded um, by the Romans you know for being a a heretic or whatever well that's a great well he would have been great he was a believer he was a believer not a heretic right he was well he was a heretic to the Romans right to the Romans it's not quite the right word but I I think Um, that context makes it even yeah, More so it, it, that that part applies to Z for sure, this, yeah. this martyrdom. But and of H. course, Pancratius is not, you know, in the Christian story, he's not, you know, putting down the sword and protecting the lamb because he right. cares about animals, sure, right? Sure. It's the lamb, it represents Christ. But, but Z kind of feels like, okay, if you want to use the Christian metaphor, like that all of these bodies of nature are Christ. Yeah, well, he makes a conscious separation in the book where he's, he realizes Pancratius let the lamb go because he cared about nothing. Exactly. He wanted to and escape. And there's a nihilism the way that, to that. That to, Teresa to wanted to renounce this life, yeah. seek the the next life. And he realizes that, no, he, he doesn't feel that way. He loves the lamb. He He's yeah. protecting the lamb because he has... He says something about like it's it's not right to turn anything into a sign or to a yeah. symbol, and that's what so much of religion does is to say, well, this is something else. Yeah. And Z is very literal. It's like this thing is, is what it thing. is. Yeah. Like a tree is a tree and it is a being, and it's not you know a stand-in for some human idea. There's also a plot to this book, guys, and it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, I know. Which which we haven't talked about, and since we're running out of time, but we this is I mean. Won't. This, this conversation's important, though, because oh, yeah. it, it all ties in. And I think this does the book justice more than a plot. Yeah, yeah and sure. also you have to read the book and you can get the plot, right? Exactly. So, but yeah. I did want to say, too, it's so nice to be live. And, you know, Maurice is a friend of the show and she's a friend of mine. And it's I just want to say it's really nice to be sitting here together yes. having a conversation in real life. I just wanted to put that out there, people. I'm sorry if you it's can't good. do it. It feels good. It yeah, feels good. Really good. Maurice, what, uh, since we only got a couple minutes left, what, what's next after this? I know you're always working on stuff. Uh, and it's kind of crazy because yeah. you're always working on stuff. Yeah, I'm working on seven books. <laughs> Isn't that impressive? Aren't you impressed? Wow! <laughs> Isn't you had something with bullfighting? Correct? Seven mansions, yeah. seven books. So what's the the irony is that yeah, the big one of the big projects is a book about bullfighting, and my um, you know, I'm a vegan, but I also really like bullfighting. <laughs> you're wearing it. I have a Hemingway shirt on right sure. now. So. Um, uh, yeah, so. There's a nonfiction project about that and about what can, what can bullfighting mm. teach us about animals and our relationship to animals and you know bullfighting is horrible, <laughs> but it's brutal. also yeah. it also aspires to be something quite um, 
quite beautiful and sometimes there is beauty in it and so I'm interested in that um, dichotomy is like what what can we learn about relationships with animals through a ritual that seems so horrifically abusive and violent and that's from is that from FSG oh that's it's not written yet okay yeah, so we'll see <laughs> FSG. I asked. You're going to have to buy it out of my head. The Raider yeah. asked me to do one of those recommend music things a while back, so mm-hmm. I asked Maurice if she wanted to do it, but she said she was like, listening to Boleros. Remember? <laughs> <and then laughs> she's yeah, like, she's like, 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 Jeremy, I'm listening to like bullfighting <laughs> music and Boleros, so I can't, I can't help you on that one. Right I'm now. almost done with another collection of short stories, so there'll be more stories. Great. Well, you're always welcome. Yep. Mm-hmm. Maurice Meyer, uh, friend of the show. Thanks, Maurice, for coming down, too. Really Thank appreciate it. Thank you so it. much for having uh, me. Her new book is The Seventh Mansion. It is out from FSG, as you could guess, because I asked about Forrest Rouse and Giroux. Uh, <laughs> next week is our 100th show. Uh, Wendy Erskine yeah. is going to be live from Belfast. By we, the way, have you guys started that book? Of course I have. Oh, my God. Uh, is of she course. Awesome. Yeah, Wendy Erskine. And uh, you know great. what? I'm going to mail that book to you, Maurice. Yes, I want it. She's a... Irish sweet, sweet home is, is, is going to be fun. But Wendy's going to be our 100th. For everybody listening to the show, thanks so much for spending time with us. As always, of course, we give the author the last word. So we're going to go out with a final reading from The Seventh Mansion, which is available at all fine bookstores and libraries, I believe, right? Is it the That's library? correct. I have it yeah. There we go. Uh, and we'll see you guys next week here on I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Thanks so much, guys. The next two nights are dry. He drags himself through the woods in a trance, pee at his side. He thinks nothing, feels nothing. Hammer, nail, birch, bone. The pain comes later. Wrapping his hand at the kitchen sink in the morning, bubble of peroxide, Eric angling to look. What happened? I cut it, she says, pulling away. It's fine. Eric watching him, knowing something, not enough. In the evenings, pulling out the deck of cards, but she can't hold them without shaking. He pretends he is tired, goes to wait in the attic for his father to fall asleep. The math is unrelenting. A night, an hour, even a dozen trees off means some of them might go unspiked and you don't know. Where will they cut first? He rests in the woods, cheek on the dirt. Shallow cradle in the earth, dug with his hands, just long enough to curl up in. Warmer down here, hood pulled tight around his head. Such smells toward morning when the air gets thicker with dew. Dense perfume, mineral, loam, feather, all varieties of feces, dead meat, skunk, flower, mushroom, mold. Missing the body. Does it miss him? You have to be willing. Pea blows the leaves from his shoulders, settles over him, cutting out the sky. Heavy, face against his. He can see inside the dark hollows of his eyes where the tiny fingernail-sized lacrimal bones should be. Slim vertical ridges along which tears make their way to the surface of a face. The body has these bones. He has touched them many times, but the bones inside P's face are completely smooth. P's finger sliding over the bridge of G's nose beneath his eye. Beloved, don't cry. I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Maurice Meyer, author of The Seventh Mansion, out now from Farrow, Strauss, and Giroux. The episode originally aired on October 8, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production. 
with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.